Welcome to the InfoQ podcast. I'm Charles Humble, InfoQ's Editor-in-Chief. Wes Rice, who normally hosts the show, is on vacation this week, so I'm sitting in for him. And today I'm talking to Camille Fournier. Camille is currently Head of Platform Engineering at Two Sigma, and she's the author of a book called The Manager's Path, which is a book for engineers making that transition into management. She's also a member of the Technical Oversight Committee for the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and a member of the Zookeeper PMC at the Apache Software Foundation. And prior to joining Two Sigma, she was CTO at Rent the Runway. Camille, welcome to the InfoQ podcast. Thank you for having me. So you currently run a platform engineering organization. Can you describe what that means for you? Yes. So platform engineering is kind of the the new term I think a lot of people are using for what may have in the past been called something like infrastructure. Here, what it means is it is the software side of platform infrastructure. So my team is largely software engineers, and we build software systems that run the technical platforms here at Two Sigma at the at the kind of lowest, most general level. So a lot of the things that we do, you would find at any tech company. For example, I run the team that is responsible for our public cloud integration and all of the you know, automation and things we put around public cloud. Uh, we also have a private cloud. Uh, we have some Kubernetes, big Kubernetes systems that we run internally. And so the team that does that reports up into me. We have some bespoke storage platforms that we have built here. That team is part of my organization. Uh, we have some, you know, software frameworks for building services and of course our software development tools as well. So all the things around build, test, code review, all of that. So when you're hiring platform engineers, what is it that you look for? There are a few big things that I tend to look for, especially for more experienced hires. Um, So for more experienced hires, I want to know a few things. Uh, One of the big things I want to know is, do you understand distributed systems? You know, not every engineer today, more and more, but still not every engineer today, really has a deep understanding of distributed systems. And since so many of the systems that we build are distributed systems, have distributed systems components, One of the things I want to know is, you know, do these engineers, particularly, again, the experienced ones, do they have some understanding of what it means to, you know, build distributed systems, debug distributed systems, operate distributed systems, you know, think about the network, think about availability, uh, you know, think about uh, data and whether you might lose it or not, all of those considerations. So that's, that's one of the distinguishing characteristics, I think. The other thing that I actually look for a lot in my team is what I call customer empathy, which is a little bit of a a change that I actually uh, put into the organization when I joined. So Two Sigma is a financial company in New York City. And my team is building, we're building platforms for other developers and modelers within Two Sigma. And so, you know, it's very easy when you're building tools for your own company to kind of get into this mode where they have to use the thing that you're building. So you don't really think about necessarily what they want, or you get, you sometimes even get into kind of a a combative relationship with other people at the company where, you know, it feels like all you're doing is fielding requests from them and doing stuff for them. And, you know, you just want to be whatever, building this cool thing. And so I want to be sure that the people that join my organization have some degree of empathy with the customers that they're actually building software for so that they're able to have good conversations and kind of think through what people might want. You know, they'll be able to provide good responsive support when people have questions about the software tools that they're building and that they won't just, you know, build tools for themselves, but that they will take into account 
all the people that are going to use those tools as they're as they're doing their development. So how do the people that you're looking for at Two Sigma differ from the kinds of people you would hire at Rent the Runway? So the customer empathy side translates to both of those. You know, Rent the Runway was a consumer facing business. So for those who are unfamiliar, Rent the Runway is a startup here in New York City that rents designer dresses and accessories. And so, you know, a lot of what we built was built with a product team. And we were really thinking about often an end user, a consumer end user, non-technical consumer end user, or sometimes thinking about, for example, the warehouse staff or our customer service team or, you know, whatever. So we're building a lot of software for less technical people. And having a good relationship with the product management team and, you know, caring about the business that you were building and caring about the software you were building and really did mean caring about the customer that you were building that software for. And that was something that I really learned at Rent the Runway, that the value of hiring people and looking for people who cared about the, you know, the people that they were building products for. So that was very similar. Now, you know, Rent the Runway being a consumer-facing business and not like a deep infrastructure software company, the technical skills I looked for were somewhat different. I definitely did hire you know, many engineers who were good at distributed systems, we did have a services architecture that we used and we needed people who understood that. But obviously I also needed to hire a lot of people who had, you know, really great UI chops, who knew how to build mobile apps, who were, and, you know, who were a little bit more on the full stack, scrappy and kind of very, very, very iterative uh, in the way that they looked at building software, which is a little bit different than, you know, some of the software that I build here at Two Sigma, where we have the luxury and the need to think a little bit longer, spend a little bit more time in designing these really robust distributed systems that we're building and providing. I was wondering, as you were speaking there, whether you think that an interest in the product itself is important, whether you need an interest in, say, fashion to work at Rent the Runway versus an interest in finance to work at Two Sigma. Does, does an interest in the business itself matter? I mean, it doesn't hurt, but it sort of depends on where you are. Frankly, in my team here at Two Sigma, you know, we are in finance, but a lot of the people who work on the team with me here are not that interested in finance. (laughs) (laughs) You know, some of them are, some of them aren't. I, I will admit to being not personally, like totally passionate about finance. I have worked in finance before. I think there are interesting technical challenges in the finance industry, and I've learned a lot about it in the process of working in it, but it's not like, there are some people who just love finance and I am not one of those people. And most of the people I think who work for my team are actually not those people either. But we're still able to do our jobs because the technical problems are interesting to us and we're able to translate that into, you know, kind of a, uh, our day-to-day work still feels fulfilling. And I would say similarly at Rent the Runway, there were definitely people who loved fashion. You know, I find, I enjoy wearing nice clothing but I'm not a fashion industry, you know, obsessor personally. And so, you know, and I would say that most of my team, you know, their people were a little bit more, I guess, often more open-minded about fashion. But I mean, look, we had plenty of your stereotypical, you know, nerd who dresses in, you know, jeans and hoodies and is just not interested in fashion at all. And they were still interested and engaged in the product and the business because I think they were, you know, they were interested in the process of like building a great business, of building a great product for the customers. So, you know, I 
I'm always like, it's nice if you can be passionate about the industry that you're in, I guess. Some people that's really important. I don't think it's so important to most people that it actually makes or breaks your success in any company or any career. That's interesting. So maybe another way of thinking about it is, have you had a situation where you have people on your team that maybe don't fit on your team, but maybe would fit somewhere else within the organization? So do you have any approaches for aligning people to their particular strengths, maybe? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Certainly. So a lot of that is actually really about the culture of the team. So using my current organization, right? One thing that we really do have to care about is operational excellence of the software that we're building. Again, we're building big foundational systems and a lot of people rely on our systems. And therefore, if they break, they have a big impact across the whole company. And that's very different than if you are you know, building a script by yourself to do some data analysis that nobody else depends on that you're, you know, you're doing research or you're doing whatever, right? And you need different skills to do those two things. And there are people that have those skills, but if you are not really that interested in building, you know, robust software, you're probably not going to enjoy the time and energy and focus it takes to build great platform software. Right. Right? So whereas, you know, if you if you actually go crazy when you when you're building something and you're just kind of trying to build something scrappy and throw it out there and see if it works and, and learn and iterate really quickly, you'd be pretty unhappy if that was your day, job every day, right? If you were just being pushed to like ship something and don't worry about, you know, whether it's perfect or whether it works all that well, right? So I do think that, you know, most companies, different teams have different values in the, in the kind of work that they're doing. And that's the most important thing to align on is, you know, you may have someone on your team who just, you know, is great at what they do, but what their values, they value different things than what your team really needs to be successful. But that doesn't mean they don't have a place somewhere else in the company where they would be much more successful with their their skills and their values. Right. And that presumably, again, I mean, certainly I have experienced this can happen as well with relationships between an engineer, say, and an individual manager, where for some reason, they just don't gel and it's nothing particularly wrong with either of them it's just for some reason it doesn't work and you have to kind of move the engineer to another team just for kind of interpersonal reasons as well yeah that certainly happens you know at the end of the day there's a lot of work is about human relationships and there are just some people who have a hard time having good working relationships good close working relationships and that actually doesn't in my experience have that much to do with whether they like each other as people. I mean, sometimes it does, but often it's just some of the people that I have liked the most as people and would be friends with outside of work have driven me the most crazy in terms of a working relationship. <laughs> because, you know, I love I love the fact that they are like, you know, intellectually curious and, you know, we can have just really interesting conversations about deep topics. But at work, you know, they do certain things that just make me insane. And, you know, whereas I have worked with plenty of people where like, you know, I don't dislike them, but we would never be close friends outside of work. But man, working with them is, is some of the best work I've ever done because we just, you know, we just get along. We have complementary skills or, you know, whatever that makes that that gel on a team. So, yeah, you know, I do think there are times and it's it, it's unfortunate. And certainly, you know, I am a manager of managers at this point in my career. When I see a manager who 
sees themselves having to move people to other teams a lot because those people aren't getting along with the manager, that is a little bit of a red flag. You know, it, it happens once in a while and there's nothing wrong with that. But if it happens a lot, the problem is actually probably that the manager is not, is not being flexible enough or, you know, there, there's probably some problem that the manager actually needs to resolve. Or maybe the manager is trying to manage the kind of, a kind of team that's not good for them, right? You know, the kind of person that's going to be great at managing, for example, um, a user, a user facing like UI team may not be a great manager for a QA team, for example. And so there's also a matter of like, is this person having to manage people that they're going to be able to work well with and like lead effectively? Because we can't all lead every, every kind of person effectively. So I mentioned in the intro, the Manager's Path book, which I read when it came out and I rapidly reread it when we lined up this podcast. I think it's an absolutely terrific book. I mean, I have moved away from managing technical teams myself. So there was a bit of me reading it and going, gosh, I wish I'd had this sort of seven or eight years ago. But even as someone managing non-technical teams, I still think there's a lot of really good advice in there. And one of the things that I really like about it is that it's very focused on the kind of practical nuts and bolts of what you need to do. It's kind of unusually practical in a way that I think a lot of leadership books are maybe not. I just wondered, was that kind of part of your intention when you wrote it? Was there a sort of gap there that you perceived? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a very pragmatic person. And I had been blogging, you know, on and off since I started really managing a lot, since I took over the team at Rent the Runway. And I felt like what I what people were enjoying about my blogs, like I'm, you know, I can do thought leadership <laughs> and big ideas and whatnot. But but I always felt that the things that I, I helped people with were really the the more pragmatic aspects of management. Like I'm in this situation and this is hard and I've never had to deal with this before. What do I do? And, you know, I think that that's one of the things that I'm pretty good at is I'm, I'm, like, I'm a categorizer and I see patterns and I categorize things a lot. That's just kind of my personality. And so, you know, I think one of the things that my blog was, has provided to people and that was what I wanted to do with the book was give people just some ideas of things to try. Because the first time you manage, the first time you hit that situation where, you know, someone's unhappy and they're looking to quit or you have to do one-on-ones or you know, you have to run a reorg or something like that. And you've never done that before. It can be paralyzing to be like, how do I even begin? And, you know, even if ultimately the suggestions that I provide in the book about various situations don't end up being what you do as you develop your own management style, I think there's something valuable in giving people starting points to just try and iterate and learn from. And and that was my goal. You know, I wanted this to be kind of like, you know, this is an O'Reilly publication, and I wanted it to be in the style of those useful O'Reilly books that you look at it and you're like, how do I get started doing X, Y, or Z? You know, how do I actually like learn how to do this, this task, this, this thing that's in front of me and not just sort of high level hand wavy, you know, be a leader and communicate well. And, you know, and that stuff is great. I love leadership books. I eat them up. I read a lot of them, but you know, they're not, they're, 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 they can be inspirational, but they're not always very useful in your day to day. So one of the things you mentioned there were one-on-one meetings, and the section on one-on-one meetings in the book is quite early on, and I thought it was a really strong section. And one of the things that I liked about it a lot was that you kind of give different examples of different patterns, different styles of one-on-one meetings, and you give advice on how to kind of mix up those different styles. 
and how to avoid the one-on-one descending into a kind of boring status meeting, which they do, I think, have a tendency to do if you don't guard against that. So I really liked that section. Maybe you could talk a little about one-on-ones. Perhaps you could define what they are and talk a little bit about why you think they're important and draw out some of those different styles for us. Yeah, absolutely. As I said earlier, so much of our job at work is about human relationships. And this is something that when you're an engineer and you're writing code a lot, you you sometimes forget about that part of the job a little bit. And, you know, when I have, I don't write a lot of code these days. I don't write code for work at all. Uh, but there are like occasional times when I'll like pick something up. I was helping a friend, you know, who's a teacher teaching coding, debug something recently. And, you know, you kind of get in that that really like focused zone where you're just thinking about the software. You're thinking about, you know, you're, you're in this very abstract world, right? Where it's just about bits and bytes and, and characters on a screen. And it can be, I think when you make a ch- transition to management, a lot of times you're like, oh, there, this is not just about the bytes on the screen anymore. And so you're making this adjustment to also having a lot of your time spent thinking about people and relationships. And one thing about relationships, at least in my personal experience, is that they tend to be better when you when you have like inter, when you have conversations, one on one conversations with people on a regular basis. You know, I personally like prefer weekly one on ones, and this is just a meeting where you're sitting down with someone, and if you're you know remote, you're doing it via video chat or or phone or whatever. But you're you're having a focused interaction one to one person to one person on various topics and part of the value of it is just that you're like reinforcing the social connection that you have with another person that you're reminding yourself that this other person is a human being and they you know they are a human being they have things that they're interested in they have stuff going on in their life you know they're not just a a, a thing that produces code or whatever, right? <laughs> right. You know, so so like for me, I also have observed over time, and this is something I've just had to learn about myself, like I get really stressed out when I have people that I have close working relationships with and I don't talk to them one-on-one that often, particularly if there's any kind of conflict that we end up in. You know, I get, you get kind of paranoid, you know, is this person mad at me? Am I doing the wrong thing with this project? Am I, you know... What are they thinking about this? Do they care about my work? There's, there's all kinds of things that regular one-on conversations can just kind of ease that fear that a lot of people have about their managers or you know other close people that they work with. So I'm a big proponent of one-on-ones. You know, fundamentally, I think the most important thing about one-on-ones is just that they are like a relationship maintenance thing. You know, in the same way that if you're married, you want to try to spend some time with your spouse, if at all possible. Right. You know, whether it's you do date nights or you just, you know, you talk for five minutes before you go to sleep at night or whatever it is that that checking in with your partner is important in a relationship. And that checking in with your team is important in a management relationship. So I think one on ones are important. And I think that if you especially for new managers who are often juggling management and some individual contribution responsibilities where they're, you know, a new managers often also are expected to write code or you know, do some hands-on work. And, and I actually think that's okay, but it means that you're juggling things and it can be really painful to do this context switching between focused technical work and talking to people. And I think it's just important to like really hammer home, like, I know that's not always fun. It's, you're not always in the mood for these one-on-ones. You're not always feeling up to it. But the worst thing you can do is neglect those because 
you know, when you neglect them, you just miss things about the people on your team. You miss building that relationship. You miss, you miss important stuff that you will otherwise catch much earlier if you're talking to people regularly. The most important thing about one-on-ones is just holding them regularly and, you know, ideally at least every other week, because I think that, you know, it's very hard to go longer than that and maintain a good relationship, especially if it's, you know, not someone you've been working with for a really long time. So one of the things that you're very well known for, I think it was actually the, the first time I came I came across you, was you published the engineering ladder when you were at Rent the Runway on your blog. And it's actually still there. So I will link to it in the show notes. And you also talk about that in, in the Manager's Path book as well. I was curious about why you published the ladder and, you know, kind of what led you to do that. Yeah, so I published it because... The way that I wrote the ladder for Rent the Runway was via back channel help from friends. So I had friends who were CTOs at other companies. My husband works at Google. And I, I took advantage of these, you know, this network that I had to help me create this ladder. Actually, and my team helped me create the ladder as well. It was not just, this is not just my own work. This is the work of other engineers at Rent the Runway as well. And what I what I realized when I had created it was that like if you especially if you're just like starting out at a startup you're maybe a new leader you've never done this before you maybe don't have like a strong full HR team and your team is clamoring for you know for levels they they want that ladder they want to know what level they're at you know you, you're at the stage of the company where this is actually becoming important to your team and you agree where do you start. You know, there, there's nowhere to start, right? And look, I'm an engineer. We, I love to look at other people's source code to get started, right? Right, yes. That is one of the, one of the great things about engineering, I think, is, is how m- much people share of their work, about how much of work is like taking someone else's work and remixing it to work for your use case or just reading it and learning from it and getting ideas from it and then doing your own thing. And there just wasn't really anything like that out there for this really pretty essential piece of organizational work. And I was like, look, I'm an engineer and what we do is share things. I'm, an, I'm you know, a very big proponent of open source. And I was like, why don't I just publish this and give people a starting point? You know, I think we did a pretty good job with this. It's not perfect, but like we thought about this. This is the result of a couple of iterations. And if nothing else, this will give people some idea of a starting point. And, you know, it actually did more than that. I think it gave people an idea of a starting point. And then a bunch of other people also published their work. And some of their work was completely, you know, had nothing to do with what I had done. Some of it is like evolutions of the the runway ladder. And I think that's great because now if you're starting out and you're starting an engineering team and you're like, I want to make a, a career ladder for my engineering team, you've got a ton of examples out there to look at and learn from and, and build your own thing. And I think that's, I just think that's a great thing for our industry. I agree. And actually what you said about, you know, looking at other people's code and that sharing of knowledge across the industry is something that that I that really resonates with me as well. I think that's a, one of the best things that's happened in, in computing really in the time that I've worked in the field, which is, you know, kind of 20 plus years. And when I started, it wasn't really true. People were much less inclined to share what they were doing across companies because, you know, open source wasn't hadn't really got kind of established as a way of doing things. I think that's a really good analogy. Something else I wanted to touch on, given obviously your background in distributed systems and then transitioning into 
and what's now a, a kind of a purely management role. I think throughout my career, there's always been this rather uncomfortable relationship between developers and managers. You know, developers, I think, have a tendency to blame management when things don't go well and maybe consider managers a bit of a waste of time. I think Google famously tried doing away with managers altogether for a while, and I seem to remember their CTO had sort of 200 direct reports or something. I may have that number wrong, but, you know, something along that order. Zappos famously have experimented with getting rid of managers. There's the whole kind of holacracy trend. I was curious as to what your kind of take on that was, what you think is behind it, and maybe, you know, make a bit of a case for the need for management. Sure, yeah. I think it's it's always cyclical. So I think we're I think that trend is going away a little bit right now or is, you know, has has gone away. Um, and actually, you know, I part of the reason that I wrote this book also was that I felt like there was a lack of appreciation for both the value and challenges of management and engineering. And I thought that maybe if I if I wrote about it and made it clearer to people like what the manager's job is, what the what people do at various levels of management, that it would help people understand the value that a good manager can bring to a team. Right. <laughs> you know, I think that there is this idealistic notion that you can, you know, when you just put a bunch of smart people together, they'll just do the right thing and stuff will happen. And, you know, as leadership is needed, somebody will step up for a while and and lead, and then they'll step down, and, and another person will step up, and and you don't need to sort of make anything super formal. You just, you know, again, just this like kind of we just hire smart people, and they're going to do the right thing, and we don't need to put a lot of structure and bureaucracy around it. And you know, one of the things that I cite in my book is this uh, very famous essay that you can Google called "The Tyranny of Structurelessness," and this was a, a woman who studied a lot of I think like you know kind of anarchist and feminist organizations in like the 70s, I believe, and in what worked and what didn't. And, you know, what she found was that these organizations tried to be very egalitarian, right? So they wanted everyone to be the same. They didn't want to have official leaders, you know, they were really trying to be very idealistic. But, you know, what she observed was that when the organizations were fairly small and they had really specific things that they were trying to do, and, you know, the tasks were very, like, clear to everyone, it kind of didn't matter. It was okay. And, you know, in some, in some ways, this is kind of what you see actually often in very early stage startup, right? Where you have, you're all kind of scrambling to, for, you know, just to survive. There's so much obvious work to be done across the board. You all probably know each other really well. And it's a fairly small group of people. There's not as much need for structure. But as you grow, as you go to look to longer timeframes of work, as you have you know, more competing interests in how do we actually decide what we're going to do, right? You know, when a project takes weeks to months to complete, somebody's got to make the decision about where you spend your time and resources as a group. And if you don't have an official structure, what happens is that you have an unofficial structure. And, you know, you see this in startups that you see this in startups as they, you know, right before they they give in and they kind of put in more official structures, right? Which is like, oh, we don't need managers and we don't, you know, we're a flat organization, except the fact that like the founders have a lot more say than anybody else in the company, pretty much always, right? The people who were there earlier tend to have more say than the people that joined later. You know, the loudest person in the room maybe has more say than the quietest. 
And it has nothing to do necessarily with who has the best ideas or the most experience or anything else. It kind of has to do with these, these, you know, social undercurrents that, that happen. And some of them are good social undercurrents. Like, yeah, probably the founders should have more say they, you know, they took the risk, they founded the company, but you know, should the loudest person at the company, you know, be drowning out all the quiet people? Like, Probably not most of the time. <laughs> right. I say this as a very loud person. So. <laughs> so I think that management and structure are useful for bringing, you know, putting light on the reality of the situation, which is that, you know, there's people making decisions. And, you know, when when you have a tie, then somebody's got to be the tiebreaker. And like most of us don't have the luxury of, you know, it's all the time in the world to just like build consensus ad infinitum around decisions. We've got to get stuff done and we've got to make hard decisions, hard trade-offs about what we're going to focus on to get done. And, you know, at some point you need to put people in positions of authority that can make those trade-off decisions. Yes. Brilliant. All right. I think we're just about, we should just about wrap it up. One last question. Since you said earlier that you read, uh, I think you said you read sort of leadership books for breakfast. I might be misquoting you slightly, but something along those lines, you read a lot of leadership books. So other than The Manager's Path, are there other books that you would recommend for maybe people with an engineering background who are in leadership positions or moving into leadership positions that you've kind of read recently or just, you know, really rate? I really liked Turn the Ship Around. I think I cite that in my book as one of the books that I really like. I think it it speaks to engineers. It's It's from a military perspective. But it speaks to engineers a lot in, in sort of the, you know, you're, you're in kind of a messy situation. How do you clean that up? Thanks for the feedback is one that I read recently. And it's kind of a classic in like giving and receiving feedback. And I had never read it until last year. And it's a classic for a reason. That's a, it's a really good book that I kind of recommend everybody, you know, whether you're a manager or not. I've actually, you know, given it to people where I'm like, look, I know you've gotten some tough feedback recently, you know, you might read this. And, and it's a useful book for, for both giving feedback, but also thinking about how to take feedback, what feedback to take, what feedback to ignore. So I think that's a really good one. The book by Andy Grove, High Output Management, is, is a favorite among engineering leaders. It definitely, it has some things that I like and some things that I don't like as much, but it's a, definitely a classic and it's a good classic for a reason. So I certainly recommend glancing through that. And then, you know, one thing I do recommend to engineering managers in particular, if you're, you know, one of the most important things that we do as engineering managers is stay abreast of how to make teams effective in the context of delivering software, if you're a software engineering manager. And that changes. So that is actually one of the technical things that I recommend software engineering managers continue to stay on top of is how are the trends in you know, in software development and and related things changing that you need to stay on top of so that you can continue to have your teams be as effective as possible from like a technical process perspective. So there's a, a book that came out recently called Accelerate, Nicole Forsgren. Anyway, Nicole and, and some other folks, she's the lead author of that. It's a book that is about all this research that, that she and her team have done in what really makes extremely effective development teams effective. And it's about all kinds of things from, you know, how do you do continuous deployment to how do you sort of structure change control? How do you do ideas sharing on the team? All things like that. And I think that's 
that kind of thing is very useful to keep abreast of as a manager. This is also why it's pretty important for engineering managers to keep abreast of things like what's going on in the cloud, because that truly changed the way that people wrote and deployed software. And so, you know, if you don't really know anything about that, you're kind of missing out on a pretty important technical area that means that you may not know the best practices of the day in making teams most effective. And as luck would have it, Jez Hummel and Nicole are both keynoting at KeyCon San Francisco in November. Of course, and they're, and they're great speakers, so that's going to be a treat for anyone in the audience. Yeah, looking forward to that. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the InfoQ podcast with me, Charles Humble. If you enjoyed this podcast this week, I suggest you have a listen to the Engineering Culture podcast, which InfoQ also produces. That's hosted by Shane Hasty, who runs our culture and methods coverage. And it's more typically focused on the kinds of leadership topics that Camille and I were talking about today. So if you enjoyed this one, check out Engineering Culture as well. You can find it wherever you found this one.